So we're going to be uh, spending the next couple of weeks talking about the heartbeat of discipleship as we begin this year together and kind of come out of the first part of the year. Sherry said we were, we were meeting this today on it. She called, I think she said bleary Sunday. I was going for dreary, but it could be bleary as well. So, so uh, in, uh, <clears throat> at the end of February of 1983, um, my family gathered down in Ganada, Texas uh, for my grandmother's funeral. How many of y'all know where Ganada is? Ganado? Ganado? Y'all, how many of you know where Edna is? Okay, well, it's near Edna. It's not Frog Swallow or whatever, but it's, 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 out, it's out there. But uh, it, it's a small town and uh, down along Texas, uh, US 59 down there. And we gathered uh, for her funeral at the, the Little Church, Methodist Church in Ganada, which is uh, where my grandmother lived for many years. She taught school there and had a cafe she ran there when her girls were young. And uh, we went back for uh, the funeral, and uh, that church is one that her family uh, built and started, and a lot of folks came, a lot of family was there, but a lot of people in the community came and, and told us all kinds of stories about her, uh, some of which we knew and some of which we didn't know, uh, but it was a great celebration of her life. We had a wonderful time, and uh, my friend Buck Ritchie and I co-officiated at the service, and then we went out to the, uh, the family cemetery, which is near there, and uh, went out there in, in the midst of all the, the different relatives, all the Macons and Whites and a few Kings in there that are all related to us, and uh, you know, my Aunt uh, Sally and Uncle Marvin and Aunt Ada and all that group, and, and then here's my grandfather, you know, Henry Thomas Macon, and where I get my first name from, and, and here's where my grandmother is, is going to be married, buried, and then, and then right here next to her is, uh, is, is Mr. Smith. And all of us grandkids, we're all kind of looking at each other going, we don't have any Smiths in the family. Who is this guy, you know, and all that. And, and so we turned to uh, the sisters, the three girls, uh, her daughters, and we said, who's, who's this Mr. Smith? And my, my middle aunt, Aunt Lois, uh, she said, well, oh, well, that was, your, that was your grandmother's second husband. And we all went, what? <laughs> we never knew she was married a second time. Who is this guy? And what's he doing here in the middle of our cemetery? Let's pray. <laughs> Father, come and surprise us with your love this morning. Uh, let it on this dreary day. Let the sunshine of your presence be poured out on us. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as we begin this series, one of the things I want to, to kind of start with is, is just a reminder of what the, the commission, the call of the church is. This is what Jesus commissions the church to do. Uh, Jesus came and, and said to them, to the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, I want to unpack that just a little bit. There's a few things in there I want to point to. Uh, one that when he says disciples of all nations, that word there for nations could be uh, peoples or tribes. Uh, it's not, not a political kind of term, uh, but a gathering of people. And when it says go and make disciples, the word make is not, not make in the coercive sense, but in the creative sense. Not, you know, force people to do this, but rather grow them up or raise them up or help them grow into disciples. It's that, that creative kind of sense. 
uh, all authority in heaven and on earth. All authority. I mean, he's, the language there is all-encompassing. It means uh, secular and, and sacred, temporal and eternal, uh, wherever and whenever. All authority now has been brought under the person of Christ. And he says, I'm with you to the end of the age. So he's, he's with us wherever we go. His authority is with us, and we are under it from now until the very end of time, so that no matter where you go or whatever time it is or whatever setting you're in, you are, are never separated from Christ. Christ is always with you. And this is the commission that he comes in and he gives to us as the church. It is the unique commission, the unique call, the unique mission of the church. No one else has this mission. Now, we do lots of good things in the church. You know, we, uh, we feed people that are hungry. Oh, I don't know what I just did there. We feed people that are hungry. We provide health care to folks that are sick. Uh, we help people who don't have a place to stay. Uh, we help provide education for folks. I mean, we, we do lots of good things in the church. But the one thing we do that no one else does is raise up disciples for Christ. If the church was to cease to exist tomorrow, there would still be people who would be feeding the hungry. There would still be people who would be providing education. There would still be people housing the homeless. There would still be people providing health care. But there would be no one raising up disciples for Christ. And within a generation, the Christian faith would cease to exist. This is the unique call of the church. And in everything we do, this is part of what we are supposed to be doing. When, when we're feeding people, we're supposed to be raising up disciples. When we're educating, we're supposed to be raising up disciples. When we're, when we're there with them in a time of difficulty, we're supposed to be raising up disciples. This is our unique calling as the church of Jesus Christ. And so as we, uh, as the leaders of the church and uh, the senior staff, as we've talked about, you know, what does it mean to just talk about discipleship and we think about raising up disciples, uh, you know, we're, we're aware that it, it encompasses a lot of ground because it goes all the way back to evangelism, you know, sharing the gospel with somebody in the first place, uh, all the way through the other end, you know, helping people grow and, and become perfected in love, as John Wesley would say. So it's this broad spectrum of, of raising people up to be disciples and growing them in their discipleship. And, and that's what what we're going to be discussing for the next couple of weeks. Uh, what does that mean for us? And, and as we come into that, one of the, the ways to look at that is to kind of come at it from our unique perspective. We have a unique purpose statement that we use in this church. Uh, you hear it at the beginning of every worship service, believe it or not. Uh, it, it, that, that is provided you're here by the beginning of the worship service, because uh, I know some of you worship 10 minutes later than the rest of us. Um, <laughs> Hey, it is what it is, you know, and when our kids were small, we did that too. So, uh, you know, what can I say? Um, but, but, but if you can hear, you know, you hear that unique purpose statement, which is what we are leading people to. Oh, man, that's pathetic. Okay, we're going to, look, 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 we said this, we're leading people to what? Experience So, so we framed that uh, a number of years ago, and we did it intentionally. You, you see the acronym it makes, the EKG. We did that intentionally. You should know that the first time we did this, it came out, and the acronym was KEG. And I said, no. <laughs> no we can't do this. No. We, 
don't care what you like, can't do that. So it's got to be EKG. The, this idea, and so, so we're going to talk today about experiencing God's love, but this idea of EKG, of the, the heartbeat. And you know, your, your physical heartbeat, you know, we can, we can measure your physical heartbeat and kind of look at it. If you've ever been in a hospital, you may have seen a trace that looked like one of these things. And so, you know, they can put this on you and run an EKG and look at that, and they can tell if your heart's beating the way it's supposed to or not. Uh, we, I, I, ha, I have another slide that I decided not to show you this morning that shows the really wild ones that have the words on it that say shock. And I thought, no, that'll just scare people. Uh, so, so that, you know, but, but you know, we, we have this way, we can use an EKG and we can tell if our heartbeat is healthy or not. And what we want to be thinking about as we move through the next couple of weeks is, is how healthy is our heartbeat as, as disciples of Christ. Remembering that... Um, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, your heart is not simply the, the physical uh, organ in your body, nor is it simply the seat of your emotions. Uh, but within our tradition, the word heart means that which is uniquely you, uh, that, that which makes you who you are, that which defines you as the unique creation of God that you are. That's your heart. And so the question for us as we move forward is, is how healthy is that? As, as a follower of Christ, how healthy is your heart and your heartbeat? So this day, we're going to talk about experiencing God's love, the first piece of this. And you know that word love, you know, we're, we're very familiar with that in Scripture. Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Or uh, one of my favorites out of Romans, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us, and that while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, that, that use of, of love in those passages there uh, is very familiar to us. Now, <clears throat> in, in our world, we, we don't always use love very accurately, and sometimes I think we don't use it properly. Uh, you may have seen uh, stuff where you know, people have talked about love is love and that kind of thing, but, but I'm telling you, within Scripture, that simply is not true. Uh, within our basis, within our faith tradition, within Scripture, there are different ways of talking about and understanding love. Uh, and particularly within the Greek language, there are three words that appear uh, throughout Scripture. Uh, eros, which is romantic or sexual love, which is really about all our culture seems to understand anymore. Uh, philos, which is a familial or fraternal love. And this is the love of a brother and sister or, or a really close friend. You know, those people who become part of your family by choice. You know, you adopt them, they adopt you. Um, and then agape, this, this godly, this servant-hearted, sacrificial love, which is focused on the other. And, and that's the kind of love, agape love, that we're going to be discussing this morning that appears in these biblical passages. Um, that's the kind of love that, that looks at other folks. Um, and just to kind of give you a little contrast, when we talk about the different kinds of love, please, thank you. Uh, so if we think of agape as kind of the sacrificial type of love, uh, you know, you have this kind of contrast. That, you know, agape is it's concerned with the other person and, and selfishness is, is concerned with me. Uh, sacrificial love is concerned with what does that person need and selfish love is concerned with what do I need. Uh, sacrificial, what's good for the other person and selfish is, is what's good for me. Uh, sacrificial is what builds the other person up and selfish is what builds me up. Sacrificial is what affirms the other person. Selfish is what affirms me. Sacrificial is what can I do for them. Selfish is what can they do for me. And if you look at that list, that run on the right-hand side is about 90% of what we mean when we use the language. But Scripture is talking about the left-hand side this kind of sacrificial love, this agape love. 
that God pours out on us. It's, it's, it's not just emotional, kind of warm, fuzzy stuff. Agape love involves a, a will, it involves a determination, it has a strength to it, it has a steadiness to it. Uh, we're told that God's love endures, is steadfast, and endures forever. I mean, it, it doesn't waver and it doesn't back down. Uh, that's the kind of love we're discussing this morning. Uh, you know, if you're in that emotional kind of uh, understanding, you know, that, that kind of stuff is, uh, it, it comes and it goes, it wanes and it gets stronger, it moves around, it's not reliable, uh, and that's not at all what was referred to here. The kind of love we use in our, in our culture, you know, where we talk about it, this kind of emotional definition of it, you know, you just think about it. If, if you've ever had someone who has at one point said, I love you, and then later on spews hatred and anger at you, you know just how unreliable and hurtful that kind of love is. And, and if you've ever been the person who has said, I love you, and then later has spewed your hatred and anger at someone, you know how hurtful and damaging that is. And that is not the kind of love we're talking about this morning. This is the love of God that is steadfast in purpose, that endures, that has a tremendous amount of strength to it. I mean, when you think about the way it's used in these two passages, you know, God so loved the world, he gave his only son. I mean, you know, God, God so loved you, the God of all that is, the God of all creation, so loved you that he chose to come down and be born into the midst of this world. The God of, of all that is chose to be betrayed by his friends because he loves you. The God of all that is chose to be abandoned out of love for you. The God of all that is chose to be falsely arrested and persecuted out of love for you. The God of all that is chose to suffer physical pain and to be crucified and died out of love for you. That's not warm, fuzzy, emotional stuff. That's iron hard resolve and strength. That's an act of will. That's an act of steadfastness. And when you read in that second one towards the end where it says, uh, God proves his love for us, and that while we still were sinners, while we still were, in other words, of, of translating this to you, it says, enemies of God, Christ died for us. That's not a warm, fuzzy kind of thing. That's, a, that's an act of will, that's an act of strength. That takes determination. That's the kind of love we're talking about. That's the way in which God loves us in Scripture and the way in which God calls us to love in Scripture. If you go back and you read some of the instructions of Deuteronomy, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, with all your soul. I mean, with everything you have, you're to love God. Not, not just when you feel like it or when it's warm, but with everything. Keep these words that I'm commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're away, when you lie down, when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Love God with all you are, not just when you feel like it, not just with your emotion, but with everything you have. And, and do it all the time. Now, I don't know about y'all, but you know, that, that that's, can be challenging for me because, you know, when I get up in the morning, you know, I'm, I, I kind of start slow in the morning. You know, when I'm rising, you know, and I'm supposed to love the Lord God with all my heart and my soul, my, 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 you know, it's hard enough sometimes for me just to get up in the mornings, you know. And, and you know, I, I want to start off nice and slow and easy. Let me have my cup of coffee and have a little time to read and pray and kind of ease into the day, right? 
you know, when, when my daughter was living with me, you know, she'd come down the stairs in the morning and she'd be talking to me as she was coming downstairs. And, you know, really all I'm thinking about that time when she's coming down the stairs talk, talking to me at first thing in the morning is shut up. Oh, my gosh. I'm not ready for this, but I'm supposed to love God with all my might when I get up the first thing in the morning. That's a challenge. That's a challenge. And the same way God calls us to love one another, this passage in 1 Corinthians 13 that's uh, very familiar, you know, love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude, and I'm already in trouble here. Love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You got that, right? Y'all are all good with that? Y'all know how to do all that, right? Let Let me, let me, Let's try it this way. I want you to read this phrasing of this with me. You just read it with me and think about whether this really sounds true or not, okay? Just read along with me. I am patient. I am kind. I'm not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. I do not insist on my own way. I am not irritable or resentful. I do not rejoice in wrongdoing, but I rejoice in the truth. I bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. How you doing? (laughs) Somebody at 9.30 shouted liar out, (laughs) right? Yeah, the first time I did this, I thought, man, I am in so much trouble because that's not me. You know, I, I I can do all that stuff up there, right? I can be envious and boastful and arrogant and rude and insist on my own way and be irritable and resentful and I can rejoice when bad things happen to other people. I can do all that stuff. And, and so can you. See, here's the deal. I, when I read through that first time, I realized I, I can't do this. It's just not possible. There's no way I can pull that off. And frankly, there's no way you can do it either. Because on our own, you and I cannot love this way. What gave me hope as I went through this was somebody pointed me to, to the first letter of John, and I began to read through this. And, and if you've never read it, just pick it up sometime and read through it. It's a wonderful letter. But he writes to us and he says, Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Oh. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not know God, whoever does not love, does not know God for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is perfected in us. You understand? The only way to do this is to be connected with God and allow God to indwell us and to send his love through us. By this we know that we abide, that we dwell in him and he in us, because he's given us of his Holy Spirit. And we've seen and do testify that the Father has sent his Son as the Savior of the world. God abides, God dwells in those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and they abide, dwell in God. So we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this way. 
that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. You see, we're not capable of doing this. It's God who has loved us first and who pours that love into us. And it's God's love working in us that is capable of this. Dr. Ken Collins, uh, well, no, no, I'm going to skip for it. I mean, this is, this is it. You know, we love because he first loved us. When we dwell with God and God dwells in us, when God indwells us and his life is in us and we are in his life, then God's love is working through us. And, 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 and I just think about you know, the, the Christians I know and, and how many of them profess the name of Christ and yet are living in fear or living in anxiety or living in anger and, and, and it makes me wonder whether they're allowing God to indwell them. Our, um, our, our friend John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, grew up in the Episcopal Church, the Anglican Church in England, uh, grew up in the household of a priest, uh, went to Oxford, uh, went back and served his father's parish for six years as the parish priest. Uh, that wasn't doing it for him. He went to the colony of Georgia as a missionary and as a priest to the colony. He failed miserably at both. Uh, the people there didn't like him and he didn't like them and he got in legal trouble and then running back to London with his tail between his legs and he was in utter despair when he wrote in his journals, you could hear it in his voice, that he felt he had failed as a person, he had failed, failed as a Christian, he had failed as a priest, and he was right. Because he had tried to do it on his own. And then on, on May 24th of 1738, in the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street. Kind of like sometimes when we come to church and we're a little unwilling, so you know. I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where, where one was reading Martin Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans about a quarter before nine while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. He's in his early 30s at this point. He's grown up in the community of faith, and for the first time, he has come to understand that it's about the love of God. And it's about the love of God working in him. I mean, he has been trying up to this point to do it on his own, and he has failed miserably and run into that wall over and over again. Until this night, when for the first time, he opens himself up to the power of God's love. Dr. Kenneth Collins writes and says, By instinct, Yancey notes, I feel I must do something in order to be accepted. Indeed, just as in Wesley's own day, so many people today struggle in the ungrace of thinking that they must do or be something first in order to be forgiven, an approach that is actually the last gasp of the sinful self to micromanage its own life. It's vain attempt to bring about redemption. And how many of us are stuck in that place where we're micromanaging our sinful self and 
trying to bring about our own redemption and running into that same wall that Wesley did and, and in despair. What I want you to hear this morning is you're, you can't do it. <laughs> Just like our friend John, it, it's about God loving you and about you allowing God to love you and pour his love into you. Pour his life into you. And only then will you be able to love the way God calls you to do it. So we're, uh, we're standing in the cemetery and uh, looking at Mr. Smith's headstone there. I'm thinking, wow, okay, we, we, none, of us, none of us grandkids, we have a clue about this story. What's, what, uh, so tell us what the deal is. So, so Lois begins to tell us the story. You know, well, you know, this was your grandmother's second husband. You know, your, when your grandfather died, you know, life was really hard for us. Uh, you know, I left my grandmother with a, a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old, a 6-year-old daughter uh, in that economic hive of activity known as Ganeda, Texas, in the Depression. And so it was a struggle from one day to the next to know if they actually were going to have enough to eat. And in the midst of that, my grandmother met Mr. Smith and thought, well, maybe here's an opportunity for some help in this and somebody that can help us get through all of this and everything. And, and, and they got married. And, uh, and within a few weeks after that, my grandmother realized that Mr. Smith had a problem with alcohol. And so she, she tried to, to work with him and tried to help him. But finally one night he came home drunk and he began to beat her daughters. So she escorted him out of the house and off the property and she took all of his belongings, his clothes and everything and threw them out on the street and told him not to come back. Now all the years when I was growing up I always thought my grandmother was something of a prude because she was so hard on us about drinking alcohol. But as I listened to that part of the story all of a sudden I realized, oh no, <laughs> It wasn't just that she was prudish about it or anything. It was that she understood how destructive and dangerous it could be. And she was trying to protect us. What I, what I interpreted as kind of a prudish moralism actually was an act of great love on her part, trying to help us. And, and many years later, after Mr. Smith had long been gone for many years, my grandmother got a phone call from the Bear County Sheriff's Department. They had found Mr. Smith dead in San Antonio. And they called her up and they said, we found him dead on the streets in San Antonio. He has nothing. Apparently she was still the next of kin of record. Don't know how that happened. Uh, but they called her up and they said, uh, we, we can provide a pauper's funeral for him. Or, or do you want us to return the body to you? And so my grandmother had them send the body back to her. She took it down to Ganeda, Texas. She had a funeral for him in the church in Ganeda and had him buried in the family graveyard. Now, I'm going to ask you something. If somebody came and beat your children, would you do that for them? What does it take to overcome the anger that she must have felt, the desire for revenge that I'm sure she felt? My grandmother was a churchwoman from early in her life and uh, attended churches. She played uh, piano and organ for many churches. Uh, she taught Bible studies and Sunday school classes, taught the Jones Luter Sunday school class at First Methodist Corpus Christi until she physically could not get in the building. Uh, all through her life was active and involved and did all of that. But, but putting Mr. Smith in the family cemetery said more about her love than anything else I'd ever seen her do. 
Because in that moment, she showed us what God's love looks like. Not approval, not toleration, but love that endures forever. My grandmother died on Valentine's Day of 1983. Uh, she was in surgery and suffered a massive stroke and didn't survive. Uh, but her heart was fine. And maybe it's still fine. Because her heartbeat of discipleship was strong. What about yours? Let's pray. Almighty God, overwhelm us with your love. Come in the midst of us with power and with grace and overcome the barriers that we put up to you, the, the walls we erect to keep you out, our, our misguided conceptions about what love is and how we have to do it ourselves. And, and help us to understand that, that we just need to come before you uh, broken <laughs> in all of our failures and allow you to love us. And that in your love, you lift us up and you forgive us and you perfect us. And in your love and in your life, your love moves through us to love those around us. So, so Father, overwhelm us and overcome us. Let us be lifted up in your love. And strengthen our heart beating you. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Years later, Wesley would write, One cause of a thousand mistakes is this, not considering deeply enough that love is the highest gift of God, humble, gentle, patient love, that all visions, revelations, or manifestations, whatever, are little things compared to love, and that all other gifts are either the same with or infinitely inferior to it. You should be thoroughly aware of this. The heaven of heavens is love. There is nothing higher in religion. There is, in effect, nothing else. If you look for anything but more love, you are looking wide of the mark. You are getting out of the royal way. And when you're asking others, have you received this or that blessing? If you mean anything but more love, you mean wrong. You are leading them out of the way and putting them on a false scent. Settle it then in your heart that from the moment God has saved you from all sin, you are to aim at nothing more but more of that love described in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. You can go no higher than this till you are carried into Abraham's bosom. Amen. Amen.